<laughs> Not bad for a girl with no talent. <laughs> and welcome to Meet Your Heroes. I'm Audrey. And I'm Elliot. And this is the show where we ignore the very good conventional wisdom to never meet your heroes and instead get up close and personal with the lesser known details and real life bad behavior of some of history's most notable people. And this week, I am about to say something that I haven't said in a very long time. I'm going to say... (laughs) It was a pretty good week. <laughs> oh! <laughs> it's about the same. Yeah. Yeah. It was a pretty good week. Definitely. A, it is one of those sigh of relief weeks. Yeah. Where collectively, the vast majority of human beings on this planet exhaled for the first time in about four years. Yeah. Yeah. For and, sure. Yeah. And we know, like, if you're not, if you're of the 70 million people who are now angry and suspicious, you're probably also not listening to this podcast. And if you are, you've probably left us a very bad review. But (laughs) at this point, I think it's very clear that uh, we've been struggling. And if you're if you're one of the five million people who believe that Trump is secretly taking down a cult of uh, pedophile Satan worshipers Mm. and is actually secretly won the election is just biding his time to come out and put Hillary in federal prison, then you got to be feeling great, too. It's kind <laughs> of a win on both ends of the spectrum. <laughs> right. You know, great week for politics. Uh, terrible week for Jeopardy hosts. Oh, yeah. R.I.P. Pour one out. Yes. Yes, for sure. Uh, but still in the um, respectful and slightly celebratory mood of this week, mm-hmm. we are going to honor one of... Saturday Night Live Celebrity Jeopardy standout stars, the undisputed best guest on that sketch ever. Okay. This week's hero, Mr. Sean Connery. Love it. Sean Connery. Yes. That's like the impression, right? Yeah, he's Scottish, so that's if you can count that as Scottish, yeah, that's the impression. No, that's not my impression. That's the like, <laughs> terrible SNL impression. We have we have a lot of listeners who are um, Zoomers and not uh, Zoomers, not old millennials like us. Yeah, I know. But that the Sean Connery bit is that was like our high school peak SNL yeah. humor. That's huge. The days of Tina Fey and Amy Poehler and Sean Connery on Jeopardy. Yeah. So let's just for those of our listeners who maybe don't know who Sean Connery is, uh, what do you know about the man? I know that he was the original 007. Yes. Or a 007. Yes, the original. I know that he's Scottish. Mm-hmm. And I know the SNL impression. Yes. And I have occasionally confused him with Anthony Hopkins. Oh, interesting. They don't... Hannibal Lecter, right? Yes. 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 Anthony Hopkins, yes. Well, yeah, yeah. In my mind, they're, they have at times been the same person. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, uh, we're going to fill in some gaps. Hit me with it. So, one bright morning, August 25th, 1930, in Edinburgh, Scotland, Thomas Sean Connery is born. Okay, he's a Thomas. Yes, goes by Tommy. His whole family calls him that. Mm. Um, They did not have very much money. Okay. They lived in this tiny, dark, two-room apartment. Uh, It's his home and his family's home for the first 
20, 25 years of his life. Wow. Does he have siblings? Yeah, he has one little brother. Okay, so it's not a huge family. No, um, but for the four of them, there's basically one tiny bedroom Mm -hmm. and then a living room slash kitchen is the other room. It's next door to a brewery. There's no hot water. There's no bathroom if you hadn't counted in that two rooms. So they have to use communal toilets outside. They're so poor when he's born, they don't have a crib crib or anything. They just put him in a dresser, right, with blankets and stuff. Sure. That was also fairly typical. I mean, that's kind of late in the game to be doing that. But for a long time, that was just how babies were kept. But it was not a comfortable place to grow up. Okay. Not a lot of amenities. His dad, uh, Joe, works in the local rubber factory, uh, but then the depression hits, and he's out of work basically all the time. His mother... There's not a big market for rubber during the Depression? Yeah, not really, turns okay. out. I uh, bet it does gangbusters when the wars come. <laughs> yeah. The I second mean, war. Yeah, eventually. Eventually right business to be in. Yeah. His mother, Effie, was always drumming into them this importance of hard work and being frugal. And so he kind of like has this weird relationship to money for the rest of his life. Based on how poor they are and how hard work is to come by, he is essentially working jobs from the time he's 12 on to try to support the family. Wow, that seems old. I was going to guess eight. Oh, well, I mean, he could have been working then. From what we know of, he was doing a paper route and as a milkman, Mm. uh, basically like... Delivery. Yeah, delivery, a dollar a week type stuff. Has a lot of these jobs, and by the time he turns 16... He's like, I got to get out of here. Uh, So he joins the Royal Navy at 16. Wow. And doesn't last very long. He has stomach ulcers, which gets him kicked out. He did get two tattoos on his arms. He got one that was uh, said Scotland forever, and the other said mom and dad. But he ends up right back home two years later. Got it. Not his route out. Yeah. He's like, peace out, big city, two tats, and then he's back home. Yeah. Went from seeing the world to like working back at, in the little tiny apartment. Listen, you and I came up during the recession. That very easily could have been us. Yeah, that's true. That <laughs> there is are a true. lot of folks who are living at home with their parents right now because it is a cold world. It's a cold world, yes. And cold also, he has to take some pretty rough jobs when he gets back. I'm sure. He's polishing coffins for a while. Oh, wow. Okay, yes. I. You know, that's one of those things that you know gets done. But you never think about who does it. <laughs> yeah, no, you don't want to think about it. <laughs> don't want it to be you. Uh, he, he's doing stuff like machine remove a newspaper, delivering coal, like just really shitty work. Mm-hmm. And eventually figures out that he can make money posing nude for artists. Okay. And so he's like, So he's like, here's my easier. OnlyFans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? It's like basically the equivalent. Uh, he starts working out. He realizes if he's working out, he can not only get paid to be a nude model, but he can also pick up girls at the gym, and he's like two for one, and so he... Wait, wait, wait. He can pick up girls at the gym? They're letting women in the gym? Well... Or he can pick up girls because he goes to the gym? Probably the second one. Yes, yes. Pick up girls by working out at the gym. Yes. And for any um, male-identifying person listening right now, uh, please don't hit on women at the gym. It's really uncomfortable, and we don't like it feels bad. Not effective? No. You've observed it. Oh, yeah. I've seen it. It's gross. It's it's bad. But he gets super into it. Not picking up girls. He gets super into the working out. Sure. And uh, by the 1953 Mr. Universe contest, he enters and comes in third in the junior section. 
Even with those tattoos? Yeah, even with the tattoos. So yeah, he's doing all right for himself. It's Beats being a cold delivery slash coffin polisher guy. But then he decides there's easier ways to make money. And he sees an ad for a production of South Pacific. So I just, I want to emphasize right now that Sean Connery, 007 himself, realized that sex work is incredibly difficult work that he did not want to do. Yeah, at first he was like, oh yeah, posing nude would be so much easier than polishing coffins and delivering coal. And then he's like, no, no, it's not. Sex work is work. He instead decides he wants to go and be in musicals. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> his backup. <laughs> I I appreciate the logic behind that. Whatever the logic was, it tickles me. I mean, so pleases me. To be honest, he doesn't really care that it's a musical. He just sees that it is a steady job that pays still about a pound a week. Okay. So like he walks in and his first question was like, how much does it pay? And the producer was like, oh, that doesn't really concern me. And he was like, well, it concerns me. What's the pay? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was a regular it was a regular job and he started to do pretty well. Yeah, he was handsome. He's fit. Can Par- he sing? Apparently can dance. I don't know if he could sing. Mm, okay. From here on out, he really starts to kind of take off in this acting thing. So there's some hiccups. Uh, in the early 50s, he, he actually got fired from a stage production after he tried to hit on the star who was like 30 years older than him, and he was just trying to <laughs> still, but he didn't care. She was like, no, get the fuck out of here, and fired him. But he did get several other jobs and start to make inroads. One of the craziest ones is that in 57, he got cast in this little British picture with a Hollywood bombshell, Lana mm. Turner. Mm. And he was her love interest. During production, they were seen kind of arm-in-arm, going to West End shows and at restaurants, And it turns out that she had a boyfriend at the time in America. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that boyfriend was the gangster, Johnny Stampanato. Mm -hmm. And he did not take kindly to hearing about this. I I forgot that I knew this story. Oh, you did? Yeah. So so they're in rehearsals one day for this like little British film. And Johnny Stampanato had overnight flown from Los Angeles to New York, then to the U.K., and busts in waving a gun <laughs> and is like, I'm going to kill you, consumed with anger. Sean Connery tackles the guy with the gun. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, beats him up, just like knocks him out cold with a right hook. Wow. And takes the gun. They call the police. They get the guy shipped back to America. Mm-hmm. And I believe they call that extradition. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> Scotland Yard gets him out. Uh, little side note, though. Once she... Lana Turner gets back to the States. Stampanato is just super pissed, and he beats her up uh, pretty viciously. Yes. Her 14-year-old daughter sees this, Mm -hmm. and then while he's sleeping, the 14-year-old stabs him to death with a meat or with a carving knife. Yes. It was like this insane, you know, scandal. Right. Um, But she kills him. Yes. Lana Turner, that's a whole other episode, but... Yes, there uh, a lot was ha- a lot was happening, a lot, a lot. Sean, Sean Connery's Connery. there, yeah. at the se- not quite the scene of the crime, but like he's in the thick of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, after this movie with Lana Turner happens, Walt Disney 
hears about Sean Connery, takes note, and hires him to come to Hollywood for the first time. Okay. So Sean Connery is going to be in like uh, this little fantasy tale called Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Mm. Um, I've never seen it or heard of it, but he went to Hollywood, and while he's there, one of the former henchmen of Stampinato, named like Mickey Cohen, calls up the hotel and says, "I want revenge for my boss's death. I'm going to kill you, Connery." There's a there's a contract out on your head. Yikes. Which is kind of crazy because it was a 14-year-old that killed him? Yeah. Doesn't um, seem super, super well thought out. Mm-mm. So Sean Connery ends up getting, like, has to check out in the middle of the night and, like, lay low in a safe house for a while. Um, but he does get his first Hollywood role. Welcome to America. Yeah, there you go, right? Uh, despite all the craziness, he starts to build himself kind of a Hollywood reputation, and he has now gone from being this little minor British film star to like a mild to moderate United States film star. Scandals will do that. Yeah, it's what it, what it does. Yeah, it will elevate your name right to the top. Yeah, so he starts to kind of take the rough edges off of his image. He tries to like come across a little bit more reliable he meets his first wife, Diane Salento. Her dad was a famous director, and um, she really helps him kind of like get into the business and really break through. And this is actually what sets him up for his huge break. So what I'm hearing is basically that Sean Connery's start in America is scandalous, but he has a good PR team that good- helps him transform that scandal into celebrity. Yes. He's basically Kim Kardashian, and (laughs) his wife is Kris Jenner. Yeah, you know what? Like the whole nude model thing even pans out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He he was he's the Kardashian of his day. The OG Kim Kardashian. Yes. Yes. Uh, That's fair. That's fair. He is able to do something though that Kim Kardashian was not. Uh, He act. Not bad for a girl with no talent. (laughs) Uh, Well, yes, he was able to act. That is true. But he also takes that acting ability and gets bigger and bigger acting jobs from it. Right. So the thing that like launches him into mainstream kind of minor success, he actually then snowballs into bigger and bigger roles. So he was offered to be in the film adaptation of this book written about 10 years earlier about a character named James Bond. Ooh. And he's like, you know, should I do it? Should I not do it? And his wife, who was, you know, already pretty successful in her own right, would coach him on, like, how to be a member of high society and be like, yes, you can totally do this, right? And mm-hmm. so she got him into the headspace of, like, oh, I'm this, you know, fancy British spy. You're doing amazing, sweetie. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm going to ride this Kardashian <laughs> metaphor to the, to the wheels fall off. <sighs> he is immediately thrust into superstardom. I mean, it was massively successful from the very beginning. Yes. Um, he, in the first movie, uh, Dr. No, coins the line, you know, Bond, James Bond. Mm-hmm. So, like, this is where that starts. It, it, like, sets off the whole film franchise. Of course. And this is, you said the 60s, so he's, like, 30? 62. 62. Yeah. He's 32. Okay. Uh, and he is in seven films after this. So Dr. No from Russia with Love, Goldfinger. I mean, he he ends up for, you know, decades, 62 to 71. Uh, and then again in 83, playing mm. this character. Even after they give the role to somebody else, he comes back in 83 and does another movie. Wow. It's incredibly successful. 
Um, he's making incredible money. I think it's well over $100 million for him. I'm just, sure. Just from these, yeah, like insane money. The only thing is that like this is also the time when the character, which like had some differences from the book, really gets cemented to be just this really bitter, lonely, sexist, misogynist, mm-hmm. who's al- also pretty racist, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, as examples, so in the first movie, Dr. No, it starts off with some uh, lighthearted sexual assault. No. So like he's like at the Shit. at the pool getting a you know getting a back rub and then one of his colleagues comes over and he the woman who's rubbing his back he like hits her on the ass he's like get out of here we need to have some man talk and then yeah it, it's real gross and then he he travel in the same movie he travels to Jamaica right and he's meeting this CIA uh, contact who's a black fisherman mm-hmm. and this is around the time when you're like about to see like the Civil Rights Act in the United States mm-hmm. right you're seeing like major social progress yeah but. Connery still like has this conversation where he meets his contact and then tells the CIA guy to just offhandedly, hey, go fetch my shoes as he walks away with this like half clothed woman because he was black. And he's like, oh, yeah, even if you're in CIA, you're clearly still my servant. Jesus. It's it's surprising how racist and sexist they are. You... I mean, I kind of have that experience looking back on even movies from the 90s. Right. Like looking back on yeah, yeah. films, you're just like. Or, for example, like watching the TV show Friends. Like, I recently rewatched the series Friends. Oh, yikes. And I was just like, what the fuck? This is so demeaning. Yeah, did it? Did they actually say this? I mean, right. in fairness, that's how, like, teenagers today watch The Office. And they're like, what the fuck? <laughs> Although the, the Office is done ironically. It was supposed to be comedy. This was not comedy. Right. It's just, like, shocking shit. Like, only, you only live twice? Or only live twice? I um, I've only seen a few Bond movies. So he has to go undercover. So there are all of these uh, women in bikinis who are like laughing at his jokes and like, why are his CIA, you know, or his you know, MI6 like makeup artists in bikinis, right? But then uh, they step away and his disguise is that he is supposed to be Japanese and he's got prosthetic eye flaps and a wig and like oh, spray tan. Fuck. Yeah. It's like, oh, wow. You just live from bad to worse. In Goldfinger, like it, it's no longer like just like sexual assault. He just like straight up rapes someone. Oh my um, God. There's a lot of emphasis on like how irresistible the women the character is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but she's like fighting back and resisting, right? Like it's not, it's not like that he's just like compelling. It's like, no, she was trying to stop you and you yeah. didn't, right? You still raped her. Let's, let's just clarify that a woman can be irresistible and a man is still responsible for resisting like himself or his impulse like just because someone is beautiful and you want them doesn't mean you get them yeah and it's not like there's emphasis put on like how irresistible to women he's supposed to be in the movies oh, too right right yeah but then like she's definitely resisting him mm-hmm. uh, anyway he he cements this particular misogynist it's a very trope like, deep into the character there's so much about his character that is just emblematic of toxic masculinity as a concept power over women a uh, certain machismo, just, yeah, there's a lot that not only got solidified into this character, but codified into culture. And it's not just us saying this, too, right? Daniel Craig, the new James Bond, is like, on, on the record, quoted as saying, he was a very lonely, sexist, misogynist. Yeah. Right? The character is, right? Yes, like That's yes, yes. exactly who this person is. Uh, and he is that way, in large part, thanks to Sean Connery, mm-hmm. who rode that to the bank for well over $100 million. Wow. Despite the success, Sean Connery hated this role. Oh, no. 
<laughs> he hated getting recognized everywhere he went and people being like, it's James Bond. Uh, mm. He hated that he had to do the same movie over and over and over again. It's like title sequence, you go someplace crazy, you get the equipment, you mm-hmm. go and fight the bad guys. It's like the same stuff. Sure. He kept doing it for the money, right? Of course. After growing up like dirt poor, it was pretty appealing. But he started to like really struggle with how famous he'd been, how quickly, and also how much people associated him with this one particular part and what and he couldn't get work in other parts either. Was he trying during that that 9-year period where he was making those 7 films? Was he in anything else? He was looking for other work, but he just couldn't get past people casting him and thinking like, "Oh, this is James Bond." I understand that. In my mind, he is James. Like that's all yes. I know him for also. Right. <laughs> By 1964, his wife could see that he was struggling. And she was trying to come up with ways to support him. Okay. They had already tried several non-traditional approaches. So, for example, they had a large box upstairs, which in a weird callback to his childhood slash teenage jobs looked like a big silver coffin. Is it like sensory deprivation? Yeah, it was a sensory deprivation thing. It was like lined with zinc and mm-hmm. it was like super heavy. And like you mm-hmm. would just go in there and they would like take turns every morning standing inside of it. Yes. And they just, like, loved it. I do that with the bathtub. Yes. Quiet. Just quiet. go underwater for a few seconds. Everything is so quiet and no input, no sensory input. Yes. And, and mm-hmm. you know, sensory deprivation with the float tanks now. Yeah. Like, that's pretty mainstream. This was, like, way off, way off the normal path at the time, right? Sure. So she's she kind of... probably was like, you know what I've noticed about you? You're a nightmare. How about you stand in this box silently? <laughs> like, Where I can't see you or hear you. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, so in her research and book reading, she found this psychotherapist. Okay. And she's like, I think you should set up an appointment with this guy. Love it. His, yeah, you should go to therapy. I love therapy. Therapy um, is awesome. It's the best. Therapy in a zinc box? Listen. <laughs> okay. Now we're on to something. Now we're now we're figuring it out. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the therapist's name is R. D. Liang. Okay. So R. Letter R. Letter D. Liang. He is also Scottish. He was pretty non-traditional. Mm-hmm. He invented the quote rebirthing workshop, mm. where somebody chooses to re-experience the struggle of trying to break out of the birth canal. Yeah. And all of the other members of the of the group are the birth canal mm-hmm. and hold them back. Like, scream therapy type stuff, like, kind of out there. But many of his former colleagues said he was a genius. Many of his former colleagues said he was a little psychotic. Sure. Um, but the, the Yelp reviews between someone who is both genius and psychotic, that's like a fine line. Yeah. You walk that fine line. A lot of five stars, a lot of one stars. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Connery shows up at this appointment, right? And it starts off, Leanne gives him this, uh, Sean Connery's like 34 at the time, right? Yes. Gives him a tab of pure LSD. (laughs) Oh, wow. And then takes about a tenth of that, like a microdose himself. Mm -hmm. Also, at the time, this is legal, right? LSD isn't Mm -hmm. classified as a drug until 66. So he's just like, trust me on this one. Take this thing. Gives him the LSD. And then he starts trying to fight Sean Connery. I love it. <laughs> right? I love it. Actually, I'm I'm all for this. Let's rage. Let's go. <laughs> so, and he's trying to like, he's trying to 
you know, cajole him into <laughs> revealing his traumatic childhood experiences growing up in Edinburgh. So the, psych- the psychotherapist is trying to, like, bring out the stories. And he's like, I had a hard life growing up, too, in Scotland, right? I was living in the slums, which is bullshit. He was, like, a nice middle-class Presbyterian family. But he's, like, he's Scottish, too, right? So he's trying to, like... Mm-hmm. fight him and like do therapy and Sean Connery's like tripping out of his mind. <laughs> I have so many questions. So you you make an appointment. You're like, I'm going to therapy. You show up. This therapist is prepared to drug and fight you. <laughs> yes. What does his office look like? You, like? you walk in. You walk into like a gymnasium and you're like, this seems suspicious. Oh, do you also insist on being paid with like Whatever his fee was, plus a, like a, a very expensive bottle of scotch every time. <laughs> He's probably trading it for LSD. Like, <laughs> wow. I, I mean, really, what does the office... It's not like a traditional lay down on this couch sort of situation. Maybe it is. Maybe it is. <gasps> Got to jump over the couch to get to him. Wow. So, as you can imagine, this didn't go super well. <laughs> oh man okay sorry I'm still back on the fighting <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> okay so <laughs> when de- getting punched by your therapist <laughs> while you're tripping balls <laughs> okay not great yeah so when it's Diane not peer-reviewed does not make it <laughs> it's the not, not, not a peer-reviewed approach to Mm-mm. this therapy okay so when Diane asked Sean Connery how it went, he's like, uh, it was fine. <laughs> <laughs> Not great. Thanks for asking. Yes. <laughs> um, but then Sean went back to his home mm-hmm. and lay down in bed and didn't get out for several days. He was apparently extremely traumatized by this experience. Yes. As you can imagine. Yes. And I've been traumatized by far less and never wanted to get out of bed. One of the side effects of this is not just that it was a terrible experience for him, but it did also manage to bring up his childhood trauma. So it opened in this, uh, apparently opened up this deep well, this hidden vault of anger and resentment towards his mother, Effie. So he apparently, at at the psychiatrist prompting, right, uh, Connery was, became convinced that his mother had withheld affection from him as a child and forced him into this, like, austere life of disconnection Mm. and based on this experience he opens up and starts to really revel in new violent misogyny that he had only ever hinted at before in his life the casual misogyny that drove the james bond character for the first part of his life uh now turns incredibly dark Mm, it's just out there, saying saying the quiet parts out loud. Yeah, and deep and, like, on the surface, not, like, hidden. Okay. So I don't love this, the end result of this, but to be fair, lots of people spend tens of thousands of dollars and many, many, many more therapy sessions coming to terms with the fact that their mother withheld affection. <laughs> yes. And so to get there after just, like, one boxing match with a therapist... <laughs> <laughs> Seems kind of efficient. Yeah, okay. Uh, if the end result, though, is that you are like, oh, I'm never going to therapy ever again. Wait, wait, wait. No, that should be your jumping off point. Like, yes. 
not the once, final destination. Yeah, once you crack open your uh, urge to punch women, that's when you should really start going to yeah, therapy. That's when you should continue therapy. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert. Instead, he started punching women. Oh, no. After this, he had never been violent with his wife before, but they were at a rap party for one of these movies he was filming. Not one of James Bond ones. It's called The Hill or something. But they were at this party, and there were a bunch of men dancing around her. She was like the center of attention, right? Because she was famous, too, mm. and very beautiful. And so he, like, left the party early in a huff. When she walks up to the bedroom in the dark and opens, like, the hotel room door, mm. he just, like, comes out of nowhere and just, like, decks her in the oh, face. Jesus. Yeah, just, like, clocks her. And then when she's, like, she falls, she's screaming, she, like, stumbles up to stand up again, and he knocked her, punched her in the face again. And just knocked her to the ground. Oh, and so, gosh. like, she just, like, gets out as fast as she can, runs, locks herself in the bathroom. Right. And next morning, incredibly bruised. I'm and sure, yes. bloody. And um, she's like, that's that's the point where everything stopped. So she, like, tries to escape as much as she can, um, gets out of there. She leaves him the first time. Okay. They are on again, off again in a tumultuous relationship for, like, the next eight years or so. So it is... It is a rough time, but she says this is the moment where after that point, she never, ever trusts him again. Uh, Yeah. The zinc box isn't cutting it at this point. No. No, it is not. Shit. You might assume that if you had this trauma and acted out violently like this, that in your more clear-headed moments, you would try to come to terms with this and do better. But unfortunately, Sean Connery doubles down. So despite there being additional reports of this type of domestic violence in this marriage and then some in his other marriages, Mm -hmm. he just like goes all for it. So instead of denying it, it, he's doing an interview with Playboy in 65. So three years after his first Bond movie in the thick of this franchise. Sure. And Playboy asked him, how do you feel about roughing up a woman as Bond sometimes has to do? So first of all, what? Yeah. So so yeah. So the question is, how do you feel about roughing up a woman like your character James Bond does? <laughs> and he just he right off the bat he says, "quote I don't think there's anything particularly wrong about hitting a woman, although I don't recommend doing it in the same way you hit a man. You know, an open-handed slap is justified if all the other alternatives fail, and there's been plenty of warning." I mean, I'm speechless. Yeah. Um, wow. He continues, "If a woman's a bitch or hysterical or bloody-minded continually, yeah, I'd do it." He's like, yeah, I would do it. I have done it. I'm currently doing it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, his answer just goes on, and it just gets worse and worse, right? So he's, he says, uh, quote, I think one of the appeals that Bond has for women, however, is that he's decisive, cruel even. By their nature, women aren't decisive. You know, should I wear this? Should I wear that? All along comes a man who's absolutely sure of everything, and he's a godsend. Of course, Bond is never in love with a girl, and that helps. He always does what he wants, and women like that. It explains why so many women are crazy about men who don't give a shit about them. That's not, that doesn't explain it at all. It's... Much more complicated than that. Yes, but... There's just so... I don't even know how to respond. There's so much in that. Yeah. What this shows is, like, he opened up this deep well of, like, resenting, hating women. It became violent. He acted out the violence on his partners. And then he, like, justified it and was public and open and doubled down. So after he gives this interview, 20 years later, he's in an interview with Barbara Walters. Mm-hmm. 1987, not that long ago, she tells him, you said this in an interview like Mm -hmm. 20 years ago. And without prompting for a question, he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's still my opinion. God. Yeah. He said, 
I don't think it's good to slap a woman. I don't think it's bad. I think it depends entirely if she merits it. The part where there are qualifiers for like when it's appropriate to hit a woman. Also, it's not appropriate to hit a man. Like domestic violence, either direction, regardless of sex or gender, not acceptable. But to be like, oh, if she's a bitch or hysterical, I'm sorry. I feel like the person hitting the other person is the hysterical bitch. Yeah, let's not forget that, like, especially in the accusation of his wife and all of the, like, credible accusations with his intimate partners, like, his violence was explosive and unprompted and, like, retribution, right? Like, it was not like, oh, I feel like you're annoying me. It was like, I saw you dancing with men. I'm going to sneak up on you and sucker punch you, right? (sighs) After, After the 87 interview, again in 1993, as he's nearing the retirement from his career. But wait, there's more. He's in an interview with Vanity Fair and they're like, hey, you said this like twice now. (laughs) It's the 90s. Get with the 90s, man. Do you really think this? And he's like, yes, there are women who take it to the wire. Uh, That's what they're looking for, the ultimate confrontation. They want a smack. I'll give it to them. Some people want a smack in consensual sexual (laughs) situations. Not surprised in the dark as they're trying to head up to bed. Yeah, but they just don't want a whooping to no. a whooping's sake. No, they don't want to be punched in the face. No. The fact that he is able to so consistently Jesus. and so just like shockingly put it out there, be like, oh yeah, I, I'll, I'll hit women for sure. Like that's the part that given every opportunity to like dial it back a bit, he's like, no, fuck this. Yeah, I'm all for it. And it didn't affect his career. It didn't like... The fact that he's just saying this out loud and he is still so famous and well regarded. And yeah, I mean, it was just accepted. It's shocking. So, the last Bond film he did was in 83. So, it's like 87 before he's asked this in the mm-hmm. Walters interview, right, to revisit it. The fact that Playboy didn't do more was maybe a product more of its time. I don't know. But, sure. like, by the time you're in the 90s, he's not getting much work anymore. Okay. With um, one really surprising exception. Okay. In 1998, so he's 68 years old. Wait, yeah, 68 years old. I love 98. That was a great year. Great year. Um, Even after this crazy 93 interview again, Mm -hmm. he gets approached and somebody wants him to do a role. He had basically been getting to retirement from film because he wanted bigger roles uh, and he couldn't get them. Okay. But somebody comes to him and says, I have a role for you and it is a big role in this film. The director was like there, a guy who had made some weird comedy horror films. So like there was one called Meet the Feebles, which is a musical comedy with Muppet style puppets. And yikes, yeah. But he'd also done this other like psychological thriller that had like got some awards. And they're like, we want you to do this part, and we want you to star in it. He's like, I don't know. They're like, it's a it's a big role. You're one of the leads, and we will offer you fifteen percent. Of the profits. I imagine that's good. I assume that's really good. Yeah. Actors negotiate for like 1% as like a major stake sometimes. So they're like 15%. Is it like a Muppet horror mashup? (laughs) Well, he reads it and he's like, I do not get this script. I don't understand (laughs) it. They're like, trust us, trust us. It's like, it's a classic. It's it's like a classic adaptation. And he's like, "I, I don't understand it. And so he decides to turn it down. Mm. Turns out that movie is going to go on to be several movies and make about $3 billion. Is it The Matrix? It was the role of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. Ah! 
So wow. after his his 15% would have been worth about 450 million dollars or so. After all this came out, people asked him about it and they were like, you know, it turns out he was worth like maybe 150 million dollars, so he was fine, but this would have been huge. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I read the books, I read the skip script. I watched the movie after it came out. I still don't get it. <laughs> I don't I don't fucking understand this thing. Like you don't understand what's happening or you don't like conceptually like get the appeal. I mean, honestly, I can imagine Sean Connery in like a Scottish accent being like, it's fucking wizards. Yeah. Like, what? Yeah. So yeah, it was not his not his vibe. He didn't regret it apparently, but you gotta imagine it would have been a nice paycheck. Not much else of major note in his career. He is knighted in the year two thousand. After all of that? Yes, after all of that. It's funny, he would have been knighted sooner, frankly, but his political stance for, like, for Scottish independence kept that from happening for a long time. But ultimately, he does get knighted. And uh, the last thing he does involve like, the last one of the last big public contributions of note is to help Donald Trump. In 2003, Donald Trump is looking to build a golf course on top of a 4,000-year-old sand dune in Scotland. Yes. And um, it was this example of like, it's one of the only moving sand dunes in Scotland. So it's like this very rare ecological setup and it's its own little ecosystem. How does that happen? You're not an ecologist. I don't know why I'm asking. Yeah, It's a moving sand dune. Okay. Exactly. Right. Uh, It's Mm -hmm. it's the wind patterns coming off the sea at the edge of the sea. Right. But he couldn't for years and years and years he struggled because there's all of these protections for these ecological lands rightfully so yeah and and like the particular organisms that live in them and he could not get it passed and eventually he went on records and saying that Sean Connery he loves Sean Connery cuz he's his favorite James Bond not surprising okay name and, another James Bond Donald yeah. Trump name one <laughs> also name name another one that slaps women on the ass as much <laughs> can't do it Rapist? What? Perfect. Sexist? Amazing. Multiple wives? Racist to black people? Fantastic. So they were good friends already. And then he's like, my lawyers were terrible. And then I met James Bond, Sean Connery, and that actually had the impact. Couldn't have gotten it done without him. And so apparently due to Sean Connery's support publicly, Donald Trump was able to build this golf course on this site. Sean Connery got the honor of becoming the club's first member, played the first rounds of golf on it with Donald Trump. And now, just recently, due to a public records request, we have conclusive proof that about a third of this ecosystem has been forever destroyed, despite all of the assurances that they would like avoid it and work around it. Totally destroyed. So much so that now the rest of it is about to lose all of its legal protection because all of the uh, academic learning and all of the things we would want to protect are essentially so far gone that it is unsalvageable. So far gone, gone, it's unsalvageable is essentially the Trump brand. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And wouldn't have been possible in this particular circumstance without Sean Connery's help. So for that, plus all of the hitting women and the portrayals of rape and casual racism and just being an all around shitty dude, Sean Connery, definitely not my hero. Not my hero either. I wonder how he feels about the newest Bond being a black woman. Oh, I know. That's going to be quite the surprise. That's a Bond movie that I will watch. I liked the Daniel Craig Bond movies, actually. 
Um, I haven't seen a lot before that because of the misogyny, but I'm really excited to, you know, pay-per-view because I'm not going back in the theater anytime <laughs> yeah. soon to see a black female bond. Yeah, it's going to be quite something. It's going to be awesome. Speaking of awesome, we are, because now folks are at the end of this podcast, so they liked it, maybe up to the point where we started shit-dogging Trump. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> but if you did like it, rate and review wherever you listen, please. Yes, we got another lovely review this week. And it really, I know it sounds so petty, and it really is just for our egos, but this podcast is a labor of love. And so to know that people actually enjoy it and it brings value is fun because there's a lot of shitty creative things i do that bring no value to anyone else (laughs) so i don't know about that you do know about that (laughs) there's like half done art projects all over the place of very poor quality (laughs) but this one is not So we're really, really grateful. Thank you to everyone who rate, who has rated and reviewed us. If you've already done that, you can share our podcast with friends. We did find out about the Discover Pods Award, and we are not the 2020 Best History Podcast. Well, we could be, but they didn't pick us. But they didn't pick us. <laughs> yeah. The um, winners were You're Wrong About. They were the runner-up. Runner Very popular podcast. Listen to it. I'm sure folks would like it if they like our podcast. And things you missed in history class. So it's kind of like this, but broader and um, not just about the terrible people from history. Anyway, there's a couple other recommendations folks can listen to. But come back next week and listen to us. (laughs) Yes. Until then. Don't be a hero. Do not be a hero. Bye. Bye.